HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com, bringing you the freshest radio in Brooklyn since 2009. Hear directly from chefs to farmers, artists to architects, authors to brewers, and everyone in between. Check out all of our shows on our website or by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes store. The following message has been brought to you by Fairway Market. What's the buzz about honey? Well, those busy little bees are up to something, and it is delicious. The Fairway label honey is superb. Fairway only hires worker bees that are the best at what they do. This makes for a great-tasting, high-quality honey at an amazing value with the Fairway stamp of approval. And on top of being delicious, honey is a great substitute for other sweeteners and can even benefit your health. This includes better energy, respiratory improvements, and balanced blood sugar levels. It's a no-brainer. Get your Fairway honey today. Hello and welcome to Cooking Issues. I'm Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday from 12 to 12.45. Joined, as always, in the studio with Nastasha the Hammer Lopez. Call all of your cooking or non-cooking related. We'll take anything, right? Yeah. Do you have any subjects you want them to talk about today? No. No, no random questions you want? No. No? What stores maybe Nastasha likes to shop in? Things of this <laughs> and nature? return things to Return? Uh, wait, hey, I wasn't going to hey, bring no, it up. no, no, we're not going... I wasn't going to I wasn't going to go there but Again, if anyone wants to call in and go there please go there. <laughs> call in all of your questions too 7184972128 that's 7184972128. Ah, I still haven't memorized that thing you know Nastasha I still have to have you write it out every single time. I know. And if you're not here I have to have Jack say it on the air. Wow. Good stuff, huh? Yeah. Jack, I think uh, we're going to leave the uh, the uh, break music in your hands today. Maybe you can nice. pick some good stuff. He seems to be coming up with some good stuff recently, right? He does. I'm on a roll. Oh, he is. He totally is. <laughs> what was the one you came up with last time that was really good? Some... Uh Oh, the L Train yeah, song, yeah, because Nastasha was Nastasha yeah. was the late one last last week. Usually, I'm the late one. Yeah. Well, good news. Actually, the, you beat Nastasha here again today. I know it's because we're we're reversing roles. <laughs> <laughs> How awful would that be? That would be awful. Oh my god. Anyway, <laughs> glad to say that Cooking Issues, the blog, is back on a roll with a. Uh, we find I finally got the fruit post out. It looks good. It's good, right? Mm-hmm. Now all I have to do is write the second part of the fruit post, the centrifuge post, the lime juice post, <laughs> the. Uh, how many the sous vide intense? Sous vide primer post. The uh, how many other posts do I have that I have not yet written? Knots. Well, the knots. That's from like years ago. <laughs> I posted from like years ago. I haven't written. Not only that. Before we get on to the uh, actual topics of the day, uh, 
Oh, Nastasha says, why am I sweating profusely? No, I just going to wipe your face. Oh, wipe my face. Yes, well, I biked here in the beautiful Brooklyn weather today, which is, um, it, it's, it's like it's raining up from the ground. It's like the ground is raining up into the sky. That's how humid it is. Yeah. And what's awesome about biking in that kind of weather, when it's really hot, is your body can't cool it off from yeah. sweating. It's, yeah. it's awesome. But I am, I am uh, I'm collecting all of my sweat in a pool here on the floor, and maybe we can make a small swimming pool out of it. Hopefully I don't jack short out all of your equipment. Uh, anyways, uh, what were we talking about before that? Posts you have to write, the blogs back. Yeah, blo- oh, uh, I have a, not that I have time for this, because I don't, but I have a new, I have a, a new blog that I'm also not going to update. I bought IAin'tMessingAround.com. What do you and think? what else? Uh, IAin'tFingAround.com. I bought that too, <laughs> although that, that one's not safe for work. But, so like, I had this idea, that the problem with cooking issues, right? Many problems with cooking issues, but one of the problems with cooking issues is is that I can't uh, seem to do anything short, and I have to spend like 15 hours of research every time I even write three words because I'm a jerk, I'm an right. idiot. You know what I mean? Like my my sister-in-law Miley Carpenter, who's married to uh, my, it's my wife's sister Miley. Wife is also a badass. Miley runs the Food Network magazine. I mean, she's I mean she's the editor in chief. She started it. She founded it. Total badass. Uh, you know. Anyways, she's married to Wiley Dufresne, so it's pretty hardcore. Hardcore family I got. Miley has always been able to just research what she needs to know and write a great article. Why can't we all be like Miley? I guess if we were all like Miley, we'd all be extremely successful journalists yeah. and editors. I guess that's why we're not like Miley. Anyway, so <laughs> the whole point of this new thing was is that it wouldn't be food-related and I could write anything I want. For instance, how much I want you to wear your damn helmet when you're biking across the Williamsburg Bridge or how you should keep your hands on the handlebars when you're biking in the street and there's lots of pedestrians walking around. Things like that, right? Yeah. Have you seen the jerk going across the Williamsburg Bridge on his fixed-gear bike and he takes his feet off the freaking pedals when he's going downhill? Where does he put them? He puts them on the top tube. For those of you who don't know what a fixed-gear bike is, it's a bike where the... the, the the pedals are actually linked to the gear such that every time the wheel moves, the pedal moves. There's no freewheeling. There's no coasting. And so the idea is you're supposed to stay in touch with the road because your feet keep moving. And this guy's like, hey, I'm too lazy, and I want to go faster down the bridge, so I'm going to take my feet off the pedals. Moron. There are people walking down that thing, even on the bike side, mm-hmm. with baby carriages. Now, they're morons, too. But, I mean, seriously. Anyway, so that's the kind of stuff you have to look forward to. The guy to. with the fixed gear probably ends up here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, little, little Roberta's hipster joke for you. Anyway, so, uh, hey, no offense to the fixies out there. I ride a fixed gear bike, but I keep my feet on the pedals, and I have both brakes, all right? Because I'm not in it for the, for the first of all, I have the least sexy bike on earth. Anyway, okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. We, we're going we're gonna to run out of time if I don't. Oh, one more thing. Next week is the... Uh, is the uh, Mirvold, yeah. Next week, Nathan Mirvold, live on Cooking Issues Radio. You're going to call in your questions for Nathan Mirvold. Have, what? Is that you? Oh, my God. You know what happens, folks? This is the first and last time you'll hear my telephone go off during the broadcast. The uh, deal is my kids turn up, play Angry Birds on my iPad, iPhone, and they turn the sound back on. Anywho, I apologize for that seven-minute rant yeah. uh, of nothing. But uh, I would hope you would call in your questions right now to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. But if not, at least call in. Make me look good for Miraval. Will you, people? Will you call in? And there's free giveaways. Oh, yeah, free giveaways. Like maybe, I don't know, like a Modernist Cuisine apron that's signed by those guys. What else are we giving? Are we giving? Maybe the book. No. Nastasha says maybe the book so they're going to call in. Listen, please don't get your hopes up. This is what I love about Nastasha and hate is that she'll (laughs) sit here and lie. 
It's not really a lie. It's her hope, but it's just not going to happen. But she has this way in her head of turning hope, trying to turn hope into reality. Yes. Like when we got uh, Merle Haggard to skull, she's like, well, uh, we want him to school. Maybe he will. And he did. But in this case, I don't think so. I, th- you know, I think the modernist cuisine. No. If Jesus came down and said, Nathan, can I have a free copy of the book? Nathan would say, you're Jesus. You can afford it. Am I right about this? We, we have an autographed apron here. We have the autographed apron. It's going to be awesome. By the way, that's not a slight to Mirvold. Did that seem like a slight to Mirvold? It's not a slight. That's just the way I talk. Right. When I'm not on the air. Probably, I'll, I'll go back to my professional tone. All right. <laughs> talk so long that my iPad shut off. Okay. <laughs> Ben Bennett writes in, says, why not twist tie something to the fruit? We're talking about the tattooing fruit from last week and the week before. Uh, it was, I believe his name, I forget, Rolf Wind, I think, was the person who, uh, Rolf, right? Yeah. Wind, who uh, came in. And I tried to Google him. I think he's a, like, a, a pharmacy, uh, like a pharmacy researcher and a cyclist, an avid cyclist. I bet he wears a helmet. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, I was told in the Netherlands they don't wear helmets, and I was like, it's because their bikes weigh 8,000 pounds, and they do two miles an hour on those flat roads. And they'll roads. hurt the car more than the car. Yeah, I mean, it's like, anyway, whatever. <laughs> okay, uh, instead of using a tattoo gun, which is what Rolf said, I would get a bunch of plastic twi- twi- twist ties, twist, twist ties in a bunch uh, of colors, write numbers down on them in a sharpie before you go out in the field, and then tag a fruit with a number twist tie, and then that way I can keep track of what's going on with my right in the rain notebook, which we all agree right in the rain notebooks are good things. I have one in my bag right now. I'll do the same thing with pre-numbered plastic bags. That's a good idea, like Ziplocs or whatever, uh, rather than twist ties. All right, seems less complex than a tattoo gun, but less cool. Definitely less cool. I've tried various things like bags and whatnot. Here's what happens. Whenever you're out in the field, everything turns to crap. This is what I've noticed. Like, you're out there, you're tasting things, you're sticky, you have fruit paste all over you because Nastasha's blown some sort of nasty fruit out of her mouth and she hasn't looked where she's spitting and it gets all over your shirt. You know, juices are dripping down your hands, you're, like it's raining, there's bugs everywhere, and you're trying to get the fruit into your bag. Correct? This is true, right? Yeah. This is how it works. And so, you know, we, we tried many things. The last time, uh, and you'll see the post, uh, you know, the mango thing, you know, if, should I ever write it? Uh, it comes up is uh, the one thing that ended up working at the end was ca- literally carving the name of the fruit into the fruit with a pen knife, which is a pain in the butt. Uh, but... Uh, I'll tell you this. We will, we will try these various things. How are you going to get the twist tie to stay around the fruit? Yeah, depends on the fruit. I thought about that. Depends on the or fruit. it has a stem or something. I mean, you can shove something through the fruit, but then it's going to damage it. Anyway, listen to this, uh, Ben and Rolf. I purchased a, a rabbit tattoo gun called the Easy Tat. There's a, co- a competitor, I think, made by the same company called the Rabbit Tat. And uh, I purchased one for 50 bucks. And uh, it's a little tattoo gun, and it works. I, this, I got it last night. I tried it this morning on some lemons. I have to try some other fruits. On lemons, it's really hard to see the tattoo without ink. Uh, and I think filling up with ink is a pain in the butt. But what you can do is, is tattoo it and then like rub an ink stamp over it real quick and rub it, and the, and the tattoo stays there. I'm trying to think of real simple, real waterproof. I don't want to have to carry a liquid ink with me because that's not going to work. I have a feeling on more delicate fruits like mangoes or fruits that oxidize like apples that I'll be able to read it fine without ink. The lemon, if you let it sit around for a while and the skin starts drying off and you hold a shine of light on it, you can see where the tattoo was even without ink. So I am working on it, but I think for 50 bucks, I'm going to Columbia soon and I hope to pick up some crazy fruits in the markets at Columbia. I'm going to carry my easy tat 
uh, on the uh, trip with me and see whether or not I can label some fruit. So we'll get some real-world world test of this, and we'll see if we can get a good uh, test for uh, fruit heads in, right? Mm-hmm. What do you think? On a similar note, uh, there is... I'm trying to find it because I'm a moron. Hold on a second. Uh... uh, 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 uh Joshua Rosenwasser just moved from Tampa, Florida to Antigua, and he wants to know whether there's any kind of wild edibles he can forage for down there in Antigua. Well, uh, well, Joshua, I, the, here's the one problem. I've never been to the Caribbean in my whole life, and one of the reasons is, is because I think I mentioned uh, several times, I hate paradise. Uh, I hate it. Like, you know, like really nice beaches uh, and sun. It's horrible, horrible. But I'm sure if you go out into the forest, it's going to be, you know, or the, you know, whatever they have there, it's going to be nice. I did some preliminary research for you, and there's one of the problems is, is that Antigua appears to be one of the driest of those islands. So even though they have some tropical fruits growing on those islands, they tend to import a lot of them from kind of wetter uh, neighbors where they have a wider range of stuff that they can grow. So I wish I could be more of help. But I remember that a couple of weeks ago somebody asked a question. I answered the first half of the question and then spun off into a tangent. And their question was, very rightly so, where are other places that you can go forage, not forage, but go to, to taste things other than the fruit and spice park? Well, uh, I forget who asked it, but I'm glad you asked. I'm going to lump it in with the question here. Uh, I'll just tell you first the places that I've already gone, uh, some with, most with Nastasha, uh, went to Gen- the Geneva, uh, the Geneva, New York, uh, the Agricultural Extension in Geneva, New York, which is an extension of Cornell, but is also linked up with the federal government. That has all of uh, the, the largest collection of apples in the world. Uh, it also has a decent collection of other things like uh, grapes uh, and whatnot. And it's fairly easy to get in there and run rampant like a lunatic. Like, pretty easy, right? Uh, another one uh, that uh, Nastasha and I went to that we uh, blogged about was the uh, Brogdale Collection. Uh, it's, the, uh, it's in Kent, in Faversham, and uh, it is amazing. It has the largest culinary apple collection, as opposed to just apple collection. Has a huge collection of pears. Has a huge collection of currants and other small fruits. Has an amazing selection of cherries, also of plums, and I believe uh, filberts, mm-hmm. filbert nuts, and a smattering of other of other things and it's also that one is open to the public you just go they don't want you to go in there and take the fruit off the trees I think for insurance reasons just do it anyway just go steal all the fruits anyway that's where I would go uh, then uh, if you're friends with a guy named Gene Lester in um in uh, in California, in Watsonville, that's the best citrus collection we've ever been to. You can, if you join the California Fl- Fruit Explorers, I think is the name of it, or California Rare Fruits, one of those. If you join them, you get invited to the yearly thing at Gene Lester's uh, Ranch, and you can eat as much as you want there. Uh, I want to go to Corvallis, which is uh, in. Um, Portland, and that's where our collection of pears and berries is, apparently one of the greatest collection of pears and berries in the world. I want to go there. Uh, there's a couple of places I know uh, Nastasha wants to go. There's a couple of great botanical gardens, I think, in the Ukraine, right, in Kiev, yeah, yeah. I want to go to. Uh, you know, I want to go to Kazakhstan, where it's natural. Where else am I forgetting? There's tons of places I want to go. Anyway, if any of you guys can think of some good places that we haven't gone, I want to go. I want to go to the New York Botanical Garden, which I go to all the time. They have one of the world's largest coll- uh, collection of alliums, onions and garlic. Can you can you eat them? I doubt you can eat them. Though. Well, you take them and you cook them. I mean, you wouldn't eat them raw. No, no, no. But they let you take them. I don't know. You know, you got to get the right. It's all about getting the right person on the phone. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, it's just if you get the right person on the phone, everything's good. If you get the wrong person on the phone, life is terrible. Anyway, uh, second part of uh, second part of Joshua's question was. Uh, 
they have a lot of a uh, callaloo. Callaloo is a big recipe, uh, recipe, you know, slash green down in the Caribbean. Which are the tops of taro plants, but also known locally as spinach and is abundant and cheap. Are there any recipes besides a standard long simmer with thyme and onions? Uh, you know, look, I don't have a lot of experience uh, with it, but it's not only taro they use for that that you can use like a, a bunch of different greens and basically i wish i could help you here but i want someone else to call in and give us some good recipes basically it's just greens simmered for a whole hell of a long time with uh, usually with some sort of allium and spices and then either blended to make a smooth soup you can also add some salt pork or bacon or whatever or or seafood or crab or you can keep it like a stew and keep it chunky i mean i think anything that you could do with greens with a soup you could do with that or with like nettle because the thing with if you do use taro uh, leaves, which is, you know, dashin. If you use that, you need to cook it because uh, it's otherwise toxic. Which leads me to another awesome toxic plant, which was first... Pro- I forget who told me about it. Crap. Anyway, it's called Mayan spinach. We saw that in the fruit and spice park in the poisonous plant section. It, it has a, it, It'll kill you. Cyanide poisoning if you eat it raw, but if you cook it, it apparently is one of the most nutritious greens in the world. Chaya. Love to try it. We should have stolen... Like, you know what the problem is? When we were down there, we had no kitchen. We couldn't cook anything. Yeah, and we did. No, we no we didn't not not after that day. Yeah, yeah we did after that first day. So I should have stolen I should have stolen a bunch of that stuff and cooked it. That was the next dunce. Cooked. I'm an idiot. Next time, next time. Well, you know, it was the thing was it was raining like cats and dogs, and we were doing that event with uh, with uh, Jeremiah Bullfrog at the from Gastropod down in Miami. So we were much more worried about what we were going to do for that event than what we were going to have for dinner that night, which is stupid. You should always worry about what you're going to have for dinner that night. We had a good dinner. We cooked fish. We had an yeah, we had an okay dinner. I would say it was a great dinner. Remember, it took us eight years to get the charcoal lit because it was like you know the charcoal was basically like soaking wet. Anyways, let's go to our first commercial break. Call in your questions to seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. That's seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. Cooking issues. Welcome back to Cooking Issues. Calling all your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Chris Gibb from Toronto, Canada. For some reason I wrote Toronto, California on my, yeah. on my iPad, but it's not. Toronto's not in California. It's in Canada. Uh, about fixing vacuum machines. Hey, Dave, I've come across a vacuum machine that isn't working properly, and I want to buy it cheaply and fix it. It runs through its cycle normally until it's about to release the vacuum. This is when it makes a loud noise and starts again from the beginning and just keeps going through this cycle until you turn it off. I was wondering if you had any ideas or if you think it's hopeless. Any thoughts on this would be awesome. Thanks. Huh. That's an interesting problem. Um... It sounds like it's probably uh, fairly easy to fix. The, uh, the good thing is that the important part of a vacuum machine is the motor, right, is the vacuum pump. That's expensive. So if it's a real vacuum machine, we're talking, by the way, folks, about a chamber vacuum machine, I assume, a professional 
vacuum machine, and they start, the smallest ones start at like 1500 2000 bucks. They go up to about four grand for ones you normally get in a restaurant, right? So they're, they're not cheap, and if the pump is working and sucking a vacuum, if it's actually sucking a vacuum, right, you've won most of the battle, right? Now, here's what I would check out first. I can't tell exactly what's going on because it, it's not – like a normal situation of uh, troubleshooting-wise. It's not normal. I wouldn't expect it to do exactly that. I would expect it to um, make a loud noise and then not start again unless there's something weird going on. I wouldn't expect it to start again until it had evacuated. Here's what sounds like might be happening. There's a, when it, what happens in a vacuum machine is you close the lid, the vacuum cycle starts, it sucks out all the air. After it sucks out the air and it's done sucking the vacuum, it stops sucking the vacuum, it puts the seal bar up and seals your bag, after which it lets the air back into the machine and or sometimes it has gas flush, right, which puts gas back in, right? Uh, and, and, then, and then there you go. So any one of those things could be wrong. If it's sucking a vacuum, you know you're good, right? Then if it seals the bag, you know it at least makes it to that part in the cycle. It sounds like it's making a loud noise. Either maybe it's trying to do a gas flush and it can't because the gas flush is plugged if it has a gas flush. The other thing that could be going wrong is that the uh, air release valve could be broken, Right, in which case it's not releasing the air properly. Any one of those things could be going wrong. Assuming that it's not one of those things, uh, and it's a problem with the electronics board. The electronics board is is a lot harder to fix. You can get new electronics boards, but even if you have like minor electrical skills, and you don't want to actually fix the electronics. You can just hardwire the thing to basically turn it on and then press stop and just bypass all the circuitry and run all the stuff manually, right? Because it's all basically just solenoid valves that you can run off the thing. So I would say. Either one of the solenoids that's venting the thing is broken or you have an electronics problem or you have a blockage in one of the lines. Any one of those things seems a lot easier than fixing the pump. What do you think, Nastasha? Yes, I think that's right. Because we have a machine that was given to Nastasha by Mark Ladner from Del Posto. It's really nice. And the pump starts up, but the sucker doesn't start a vacuum, which means you need to rebuild the whole vacuum pump. Now, that's a pain in the patoot, right? What did the guy say it was going to cost us? Like two fifty labor. Yeah, no, you see, that's the thing. This is Nastasha hoping against hope. Two fifty to show up. Oh. It's two fifty to hang his hat on the inside of our door, right? <laughs> well, that's two hundred and fifty bucks. <laughs> then, the then another like whatever an hour to sit there and go, yeah, that that's broken. Yeah, <laughs> it's broken, right? And then, and then here's the other one. Oh, I don't have those pots right now. I don't have those. No, I got to order those pots, right? And then another charge when he comes back with the parts plus taking the thing apart, right? I mean, come on. We all know how this stuff goes. Anyway, uh, no offense to the vacuum repair people out there. All right? I don't want to hear someone saying that Dave is prejudiced against vacuum no, machine repair people. No, maybe that person is really efficient. If they yeah. Efficient. You know what? Maybe did. Maybe pooped his pants. Maybe. Maybe. Old, old expression. Please don't ask. Okay. Hey, we got a thank you from uh, Mike who wrote in a couple weeks ago. We were talking about marshmallows. He was having problems with his marshmallow sticking and says that what we said on the air actually helped him out. That's Figure awesome. That. Yeah. Hey, right? Give me the rest Jack's of Jack's happy. Like a happy customer. We have at least one. We have one person that we have helped. Jack's All time right. is finally worth it. Well, yeah. Everything's finally <laughs> worth it. Good, good. All right. Uh, Henry Schwartz writes in with some sous vide and uh, low temperature questions. In case there's anyone who happened to just tune in and was trying to tune into the wrong radio station but listened to us and doesn't know what low temperature cooking is, low temperature and sous vide is any time – sous vide is any time you have something packaged in a vacuum bag, right, no matter what temperature you use. could be boiling bag, could be, uh, could be low temperature, could just be in your refrigerator. That's sous vide. Low temperature is when you're – 
instead of using a high temperature like an oven uh, at like 300 degrees to cook something, you use something like a water bath that's almost exactly the same temperature you want to cook to. So I want to cook a steak to 130 degrees Fahrenheit. I set my water bath to 130 degrees Fahrenheit, and I usually cook inside of a bag, plastic bag or something like that. That's, that's low temperature cooking. So here's what uh, Harry Schwartz has to say. I'm an amateur cook who loves to try new techniques. I did a summer cooking camp for kids in the neighborhood, and the parents pitched in to buy me a sous vide Supreme machine. Nice parents. Good job. A uh, home version of what you guys use. It's, the sous vide supreme is the one that doesn't circulate. It's basically a, a, a temperature controlled water bath. I think it's about five hundred bucks. I've never used one. Someone suggested your site uh, and I listened to a few episodes on your radio show. I think it's great, but the more I listen and read up on sous vide, the more I confused I get. You're not alone, my friend. You're not alone. My question is, why is there such a great difference in suggested cooking times and temperatures for sous vide cooking? I wanted to do short ribs as my first sous vide experiment and saw recipes for two to three days of cooking. It didn't make sense, so I. I called one of my favorite restaurants in Philadelphia, LaCroix, and Chef Adam there suggested 130 degrees Fahrenheit for eight hours, which worked perfectly. I see you see uh, – well, let's start right there before we go on. The reason why there are different times and temperatures is because different people want different effects when they're cooking, okay? So uh, I know you said that it doesn't make sense that you're cooking something for two or three days. And in fact, when you're learning low temperature and sous vide, the hardest thing to wrap your head around, honestly, is that meat is not going to overcook when you cook it for that long. I like uh, Wiley Dufresne, my current brother-in-law, was the first person to tell me that years and years and years ago. And I was like, you're cracked. You're crazy. There's no way you can cook a piece of meat for three days and not have it overcooked. Once you get over that hurdle, right, then all of these recipes are going to start making sense to you, okay? Uh, recipes overcook in the traditional sense of becoming well done overcook because um, you're cooking at a higher temperature than you want to cook the meat to. So as you cook longer, the more and more overdone it's going to get, the more and more dry it's going to get because you're basically cooking all the water out of the meat, Right. Uh, that's not what happens low temperature. When you're cooking low temperature or sous vide low temperature, um, you cook the meat to exactly the temperature you want it to cook to, and then it just stays there. The meat no longer overcooks in the sense of it doesn't squeeze all of its water out anymore, doesn't turn gray, doesn't have any of those traditional overcooked things happen to it, right? It doesn't turn tough. What happens instead is you hold it at a particular level of doneness, and then over a long period of time, the connective tissue breaks down, right? And it starts getting softer and more and more tender. Okay, so if you take a piece of meat that doesn't have very much connective tissue in it, let's say a tenderloin, right, and you cook it for a long time, it starts losing what little texture it has and it turns mushy. When you have something like a short rib and you're cooking it to 130, which is like 100, which is like 55, I think, or 50, 55 Celsius, something like that, which is pretty rare, right, it takes a long time. Uh, like three days to break down the connective tissue in that rib and have it get tender again, right? If you started out with a fairly tender short rib that didn't have a lot of connective tissue, maybe after eight hours it's going to be okay. Usually the short ribs that I cook, if I'm going to cook them down at that temperature, like 55, like by, by 24 hours it still has the texture of like a skirt steak, which I think is delicious. And I think Carlo here at Roberta sells what he calls a short rib skirt steak or something like that. Uh, he does something like that, like 24 hours at roughly 55, 57 degrees uh, Celsius, um, which is 130 to 135, somewhere in that range, Fahrenheit. And so you can do that, right? But the, the, So basically these long cooking times at different temperatures are uh, because they're holding the meat at a certain level of doneness and then uh, – 
and then basically waiting for the texture to turn to what they want. If you cook it too long, it goes to mush. If you don't cook it long enough, it's just not tender enough, okay? Uh, and the higher the, and there's a range of temperatures that'll work. So a short rib, you can make a short rib that's rare, like 150, 100 and, uh, sorry, 55 Celsius, like 130 or so. Most people prefer it a little bit higher, like 60 degrees Celsius or so, which is 140, right? And, and the, even that five degrees more radically chops the cooking time down from three days to two days, right? 63 degrees Celsius, which is a little high for me, uh, if you're going to do low temperature work. Now you're down to like a day, a little over a day. So basically, it's getting a feeling for how the cooking times and the temperatures interact. There's no right or wrong answer. There's a question of, is it tender enough for you? Okay. Is this making any sense, Nastasha? Yes. Okay, so the other question is, uh, uh, I suggest, I being me, uh, chicken breast for 45 to 90 minutes at 63 degrees Celsius, which is I do, and the sous vide cookbook, cookbook, which came with the unit, suggests two hours, same 63 Celsius. Don't understand why there's a difference there. Um, I just don't think it needs the full two hours. It definitely doesn't need the full two hours from a pasteurization standpoint, um, and I think that chicken breast, once it's done, doesn't get any better. I think it starts losing its texture, uh, and so as soon as it's done, I like to pull it. I don't think it, it, it it's not going to break down on you right away but when we ran a test where we cooked the chicken breast for a long time and then ate it by itself with no sauce with nothing added, no searing, anything just what does the meat taste like the meat didn't taste as good the longer we cooked it on chicken breast uh, but you know if you're going to sauce it up or if you're going to serve it cold or any one of these things I think it might not make as much of a difference right mm-hmm. um, you know so that's that's that uh, he has a second question, so we're gonna. These are these are great actual questions. So, by the way, at the end, he said uh, uh, he would appreciate a quick answer on these, um, if possible. He doesn't think these questions are interesting enough for the show, uh, which I disagree. I think these are things people really want to know about low temperature and sous vide cooking. And he says, besides, this is a good one. I'm a year behind in listening, so it might take a while to find the answer to my question. Well, listen up, because uh, you know the odds that I'll write the answer are roughly what? Two, two, zero, two, right? Yeah. They're basically zero. Um, <laughs> okay, so the second question is vacuuming liquids. Uh, the va- where do you find a vacuum uh, machine that lets you add liquids? The one that came with the machine and the one I have at home don't work with liquids. You're right. I wouldn't even use a vacuum machine, frankly. Uh, I would bag everything in Ziplocs. Uh, I find that the, te- the, temp- you know, the texture is sometimes better. It's easier because you don't need to chill the items before you put them in. Most people, when they're vacuuming liquids in those bags, they have to freeze the liquids before they put them in the bags, which is a huge pain in the butt. And just I, I never use it. I had a vacuum machine at home. I have an impulse sealer now, which I use to uh, seal things like, you know, you know, potato chip bags and stuff like that. But I don't do – I don't use vacuum at home. At home, I use almost exclusively Ziploc. Now, you won't be able to do vacuum um, infusion techniques with that, but you can't really do that with one of those home units anyway. So I would just learn to seal in Ziplocs. It's a lot faster, and there there's instructions for it on my uh, – on the blog. And he says he downloaded the sous vide primer, such as it is. Don't get me started. I know I need to write more of it. Uh, but are there any cookbooks on sous vide you would recommend for the home cook? No, not really, right? There's – there's a Keller sous vide cookbook, but if you don't have a vacuum machine, I mean, you, I would get it. The, the pictures are pretty, but it doesn't explain a lot of the how and the why. Juan Roca's book, uh, you know, sous vide cuisine is great, but it's $158 and it's all restaurant recipes. I haven't read the recent installation of Doug, uh, Doug Baldwin's uh, sous vide primer. Um, I haven't, uh, obviously Victor Stamper has a book that I do not buy that book. I think his temperatures are all out of whack. And then if you have 500 bucks buy the Monitor's Cuisine Cookbook, cause that's got to have a lot of good stuff in it, but that's, you know, 500 bucks, right? But they might win it next week. 
Nastasha, will you not, please do not tell people that they're going to win a copy of that book next week because then people are going to say, Dave said. And we're like, no, Nastasha said that you might win a copy of the book. You're not going to win a copy of the book next week. But you're going to have a very rare opportunity to call in and personally ask Nathan Mirabal the question. What? And get an apron. And get an apron. All right, listen. Uh, we're going to do another break. Call in all your questions too. 718-497-2128. 718-497-2128. Cooking issues. service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Tune in to The Speakeasy every Wednesday at 3 p.m., where host Damon Volte will discuss cocktails, spirits, wine, beer, tea, coffee, and all things in the liquid universe, with guests ranging from bartenders and brewers, alchemists and ambassadors, roasters and regulars, and every expert and enthusiast in between. Learn from some of the world's leading experts in mixology, bar history, distillation, and brewing about how we enjoy imbibing today. Again, that's every Wednesday at 3 p.m. on the Heritage Radio Network. Welcome back to Cooking Issues. Damon Bolte, one of our tall, thin bartending friends with a tall, thin, identical twin. Yeah. You think he ever has his identical twin go into the bar instead of him? No, they look pretty different. Really? Mm-hmm. I've seen mainly Damon. I haven't really seen the uh, identical twin so much. I have. He makes delicious drinks, though. Mm-hmm. And we've never had his drinks at the, at the bar. Have mm-hmm. you? He's out here, isn't he? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, but we've never been. We've only had his drinks at events. I like I how Nastasi says "out here" for anything in, in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, she's a she's a Manhattan chauvinist. You know what? I want some. P- please, can we get some angry hipsters calling in here and shouting yeah. Nastasi down? That's what we need. We need That's a little what more. I am back here. <laughs> anyway, yeah, Nastasha, Nastasha, and hipsters like you know don't get along so well. You know, she's like the. The anti-hipster machine, which is weird because she spends most of her time out here and spends most of her time with hipsters. No, I don't. That is not... Oh, Jack. I could say <laughs> horrible things right now. Uh, wait, so all of a sudden that's a horrible... Thing. You literally insult... Like, literally, like, I could go into the restaurant, which is... I can look at it from here, and if I were to say, this lady hates hipsters, she would get a beatdown. Because <laughs> there's enough women hipsters in there to, to, that can yeah, hit her. They'll give her a beatdown for That's a fair point. It. Yeah. All right. Uh... 
Got oh, got a, an email uh, question in during the show from Paul Peterson. And by the way, we won't bite. You can call live unless no, he said it didn't work when he called. Oh, does it work? No, uh-huh. it did not work. Oh, calling didn't work. Yeah. Am I reading the number wrong? Seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. Am I reading it wrong? Anyway, instead of uh, instead of using ink. With my tattoo gun, he says, perhaps I could use a leaf off the tree and drive little particles of leaf into the fruit. That's a genius idea. I like that a lot because you're always going to have a leaf when you're picking fruit. Right? Right? I'm going to give that a try. When I, uh, I don't have any leaves. But I'll just rip a leaf off a tree yeah. outside and I'll see whether I can shoot it into something like a lemon. or I'll, I'll try to get some waxy leaves too, some thicker waxy leaves to see what's going on. That's a very good idea because you always have a, a leaf. Oh, I know. No, he's saying tattoo the damn leaf and keep no, it with think, the fruit. No, he's saying threw a leaf into the skin. Yeah, but also if we keep, if we steal some of the fruit, yeah, with it's the, all gonna get lost. Just imagine. See, this, I love Nastasha. She's like, you always got to keep someone around who thinks nothing's ever gonna work. Here's the weird thing about Nastasha, right? Except for modernist cuisine. She, she, yeah, like anything that somebody else says, she's like, oh, that's gonna be terrible. It's not gonna work. It's gonna suck. And yet, if she gets it in her head that she wants it, she believe it happened no matter what, <laughs> right? Yes. No, right. but imagine the leaf and the keeping it together. Imagine the leaf. Oh, my God. It's going to come off. Right? Crazy. <laughs> Crazy. Anyway. So uh, Chris writes in about uh, MSG. Hi, Dave and Nastasha. Apparently, N- Nastasia hates the way I pronounce it. <laughs> even though we've been working together for... Like, you can't say it like that. It's too weird. Yeah, okay. So now she wants me to say it the mispronounced way. It's... Anyway. Uh, I thought I was good as long as I didn't say Natasha. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, basically. All right, okay. Uh, I was hoping you could help with a question. I have a recent customer... uh, uh, I've had a recent customer questions about products we use that contain MSG. Monosodium glutamate. Taking a step further, I had a customer tell me that hydrolyzed protein and MSG are the same thing, and that if you have a sensitivity to one, then you have a sensitivity to both. Most of our bases have one or the other, as well as a few other products that we frequently use. Can you help me sort this out? Thanks, Chris. All right, I'm going to go out on a limb here and probably get myself in trouble. Uh, but I would say, since you don't have a sensitivity to one, you don't have a sensitivity to the other. Boom! <laughs> Boom! <laughs> all right, here's the thing. Like, there's all sorts of products out there that have... Look, MSG, okay? Let's just get this straight. I'm going to get some angry callers in, and, it, you know, eventually, or someone's going to write it, or someone's going to say, that Dave, he's a jerk. Listen, listen, here's the thing. Glutamic acid is a, a, an amino acid. You can't get around it. Right? Okay? Now, the, the, the sodium salt of that is monosodium glutamate. Right? Okay. Uh, it's also a neurotransmitter. You need it. Without glutamic acid, you die. You don't, you don't live without it. You need it. Right? Uh, you, you need to have it in your body, that is. But here's the other funny thing, right? Um, you make a crap load of it. You know what I mean? Like, it, 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 you make more of it and then convert it in your head and excre- excrete it, then you're, then you're going to eat, right? Furthermore, if you can take – basically, we sense MSG is um, – free amino acids, right, and a couple other things that break down are what give you that sense of umami, savoriness that we taste. We have a taste receptor for, right? Plenty of things have free amino acids in them like – Tomatoes, like mushrooms, like Parmesan cheese, like uh, fish, right? Which is why sushi tastes good because they have a lot of free amino acids in them. 
like uh, kelp, dashi, all these things, even if you add no MSG, external MSG to them, right, they contain free amino acids. So hydrolyzed vegetable protein is where they break down a natural protein into amino acids, some of which are glutamic acid, right, and therefore have the same effect as MSG. So yes, they are the same. However, they are equally non-reactive, right? If you do an extensive research of the uh, history of studies on MSG sensitivity, what you will find is that um, that all of the studies that show that there's a problem are fundamentally flawed. Nastasha, by the way, so don't get insulted. Nastasha thinks that she's sensitive to MSG. I black out. She, she blacks out. What the hell does that even mean? I black out. When did you black out? Twice, like eight years ago. And I had, when I you had what? Chinese food. Oh, so it's Chinese food. So it's only MSG in Chinese food that causes this uh, reaction. Not all the other things that contain glutamic acid. Right. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, that's nuts. You see what I'm saying? Listen, people. Listen to what just happened. Nastasha eats things all the time that have MSG in them. She ate Chinese food, assumed it was MSG, and blacked out because of all the liquor she was drinking. No, I know, I know. Oh, my God. I swear, I wasn't drinking anything. My heart started beating slow, and I went into a spiral, and I went into white light. White light? What is this? This is not a known... Here's a study that works, right? Take a gelatin capsule, right? Pack it with MSG, randomize it with a bunch of other uh, gelatin capsules that contain sugar, right, with an equal amount of sodium mixed in so that the sodium levels are the same. Randomly distribute them to people and see whether anyone has a reaction. You know what? They don't. All the studies that appear to, to, to uh, show reactions use things like a strongly – I'm making quote marks with my fingers – strongly flavored citrus beverage to try and cover up the flavor of MSG, which is detectable. Right? They also uh, use incredibly high levels of MSG, which uh, cause you to be able to taste it better. The studies that show there are problems, physical problems with MSG, are where things like neonatal rats are dosed with the equivalent of you eating like, like uh, a half a kilo of straight MSG, which is nothing close to what you're going to use. Okay? Like there are no studies. They tried to gork out monkey brains like neonatal like you know newborn monkeys. They tried to zap their brains with MSG and were unable to. It's pathetic. I I don't applaud those studies, but I'm just saying this is a study that was run. Um you know, like this is a classic thing. Nastasha has Chinese food. Nastasha has heard about this thing, which was basically posited as a joke in the literature a long time ago, this thing called Chinese restaurant syndrome, Mm -hmm. and then snowballed into this nightmare. There's a lot of different interesting theories about why people think this is an actual phenomenon, one being that you have something unfamiliar or something you don't like and that you have a reaction to it, and then your brain thinks you hone in on it. There's another theory that perhaps it's uh, hypernutrient, a lot of sodium, right, because these diets are also high in in salt. For instance – Uh, When I eat large quantities of cheese and have red wine and don't drink water and eat a lot of bread and then eat oil-based stuff, which I do on a regular basis because I like having cheese for dinner, I get a horrible headache. Am I allergic to cheese? No, I'm freaking dehydrated. Maybe I was dehydrated. Yeah, maybe you were dehydrated. I've had two friends in college black out from Chinese food and blame it on MSG. Really? Yeah, and what were they smoking along with the Chinese food? Oh, my God. This is my point. Stop. It's like, why is it always Chinese food? It's in everything. You never like, here's what doesn't happen. I I had a Slim Jim and I passed out. (laughs) Slim Jim is like 100% MSG. You know what I mean? It's like, people need to get their stories straight. 
Here's, here's a little something. If you didn't learn this in logic school, logic school, which I did because I was a philosophy major, post hoc ergo propter hoc, common fallacy, right? After this, therefore because of this. Just because you had a reaction to Chinese food does not mean that MSG was the causality of it. Did you go back and ask those guys how much MSG they used? Do you even know they used MSG? No. So okay, it's Chinese then. food. No, that's absurd as well. It's like you had, a re- you had a reaction. Everyone needs to break this post hoc ergo propter hoc thing, right? It's not just because something happened after something doesn't mean you've established a causal relationship. The actual studies that have been done show that there is no problem. But theoretically, if you were allergic to MSG, meaning if you had no neurotransmitters and you were already therefore dead, so you couldn't have any MSG in your system, then yes, you also could not have hydrolyzed vegetable protein. Is that, was that a reasonable answer? Yeah. Okay. Had a question in from Pete on a similar thing. What's the deal with nitrates and nitrites? Uh, there are two what's the deals, right? One possible what's the deal is what's the deal, i.e. is there a problem with them? I think of the difference. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Justasha says that because she doesn't want me to go into another no. diatribe. <laughs> no. Here's what's hilarious about it. I'm going to do it anyway. So – uh, turns out that uh, like a lot of natural curing salts have nitrates and nitrites in them, which is why they're so good for curing things. Turns out if you don't add them to quick-cured products like bacon and then you vac-pack them and put them in the store, you have a good chance that you're going to give someone botulism because they prevent botulism growth, right? So uh, to me, they're, they're a good thing. Well, here's what's most hilarious to me. Whole Foods, sponsor of this show – not this mean this radio station, and also by the way, a place I shop on a regular basis pisses me off for this reason. They will sell something called uncured bacon, where what they do is they buy things like celery, which naturally accumulate nitrites in them, uh, and nitrates and nitrites in them, and then reduce it down to like you know so that like eight like eight acres of celery fit into like you know like a plastic cup. Then take the flavor out of it and use that to cure instead, and say they haven't added any nitrates. They've just added natural celery. To me, this is like the worst form of, of bullcrappery that you can pull on someone because you're giving them the same exact product with the same exact functionality with a, with a fake pseudo-healthy label on it. And nothing pisses me off more than that sort of mendacious crap that people pull on the back of labels. Okay, now back to the difference between nitrate and nitrite. When you use nitrates, which is what they used to use, nowadays nitrates are only used on long-cured products like hams. When, uh, when you apply nitrates to meat, nitrates are broken down to nitrites, right, which are then broken down further and then eventually cause the cured color and, and, and exert their uh, antimicrobial properties, okay? If you are going to do a short-term product like a bacon you're gonna, or you're pumping or you're using a brine, you're going to want to use nitrite with an I, right? Almost all things that you make, you should use nitrite nowadays, right? If you're doing a long-cured ham, then you're going to want to use nitrate. But most of the time, you want to use nitrite. And, and the easiest way to do it is to buy a product called Morton's Tender Quick Salt, which has it mixed in, so you don't need to worry about it. You don't need to worry about getting your salt and, your, uh, and having you know, pink salt lying around in case your kids, because you really shouldn't eat, you shouldn't eat it by the bushel. But it's, it's something that's been used in, uh, in cooking since time immemorial, even before it was uh, isolated on its own and used, because there was those impurities in natural salts. Okay, so let's end on a non-diatribe note, shall we? Yeah. 
<laughs> Nastasha's like, yeah. Nastasha doesn't like to get. Cl- See, I wish like you should never tell me stuff like like that MSG stuff if you know I'm gonna go off on it. I mean, I can't help it. It's like in my blood. It's like I. It's like I'm a shark and I smell blood. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. it's like I can't help it. Yeah. It's in my nature. Yeah. Don't blame me out there. Don't. I don't want anyone writing in saying I'm mean or anything like this because because she saves what the vicious stuff she does to me for off air. Like I'm the same all the time. <laughs> no, you're not. Should I get you guys separate tables? For <laughs> I think, yeah, from now on, we need a glass wall in between us on the, on the thing. Anyway, Brian writes in with a friendly question. Hello, hello, Nastasha. These are all friendly questions, by the way. Hello, Nastasha and Dave. Can you tell me how I can make my own chewing gum, and is there any way to make bubble gum? Hey, good question. I don't know whether he read the post before he sent that in. I don't think so. I got it before the post. Well, chewing gum, the original chewing gum comes from the sap of the, uh, well, the, the latex from the sapodilla tree, and sapodilla is one of the fruits that we we had at the Fruit Spice Park. I wrote about it in the, in the most recent blog, blog post. You can go on and look at it. And you can still buy it. The, and that, that latex, is, when it's, it's processed, it's called chicle. Right? And, I'll, and uh, it's very easy to, to use. Um, chicle, by the way, I'll give you the short story because uh, one of the guys at Fruit and Spice Park gave us a story. It's a crazy story. I don't know if I believe it, but it's repeated a couple times. And if you really ge- care about chicle and gum bases, you can read Jennifer Matthews' book, the Chewing Gu- Chicle, The Chewing Gum of America, from Ancient Maya to William Wrigley. And the story is this. Uh, Santa Ana, the Mexican general who handed us our behinds at, uh, at the Alamo and wiped out the Alamo and David Bowie and all those guys. David Bowie? That David Bowie, sorry. <laughs> Bo- what's his name? Bowie, the Bowie knife guy. I don't know. Uh, David Bowie's almost old enough to have gotten wiped out. Anyway, so wipes out David Bowie. Uh, what's his name? Bowie, the Bowie knife guy. I really don't know. Anyway, and like a bunch Davy Crockett. Didn't he get wiped out there? Anyway, no, no. Anyway, a bunch of people got wiped out at the Alamo. If you really want to hear the story, go read, go listen to uh, Johnny uh, Horton's uh, Remember the Alamo song. And um, I'm going to get a lot of people mad that I don't know the Alamo story. Anyway, so like he later goes back to Mexico, loses the war, uh, g- gets his behind handed to him. Uh, you know, we go murder a bunch of uh, of like, you know, basically teenagers at a place called Chapultepec Heights, win the war. We get a whole bunch of uh, territory ceded from Mexico. Santa Ana is trying to make some money now because he's no longer the president, X, Y, Z. This is later. Ends up in stat- exiled in Staten Island with a pile of chicle. Oof. They're trying to turn chicle, which is a stuff, this latex, into vulcanized rubber and they can't do it so he sells it to a guy named uh, Thomas Adams who's like hey listen kids like to chew on things and so instead of trying to make vulcanized rubber out of it he makes chiclets which are the first kind of uh, chiclet based common chewing gum available in the United States believe it or not there it is right Mm -hmm. and so chiclet was the main gum that people used for gum base for years and years and they got hit with a kind of like triple whammy one uh they started running out of chicle. During World War II, Wrigley was sending chicle to, uh, you know, gum to uh, all the soldiers to try and get them hooked on it while they were abroad, right? Which was successful. So they were really running out. Uh, it was harder to get because it was wartime. And they started synthesizing uh, synthetic ones. Most chewing gum now is synthetic uh, made. It's no longer a natural thing from a tree. Uh, so that was a, you know, a big whammy. And then after the war, uh, a bunch of... Uh, you know, people in like you know Guatemala and Mexico were like, "Hey, how come we're so oppressed? What the hell's going on here?" And they started to have some uh, reforms uh, down there, which further put a dent in uh, us basically, you know, holding the <laughs> holding the chicleros and the other peasants there down under our thumbs. And so they basically moved away from using chicle entirely. Uh, you might remember that era from when United Fruit convinced the CIA to overthrow a bunch of governments down there so that we could have cheap bananas. Uh, one of the one of the 
least cool sections of our history. Anyway, um, so you can get uh, Chicle still. You can buy it. I think Terra Spice sells gum base, but I think it's Chicle. That's what they told me. I put that in our blog. But mm-hmm. I know you can buy guaranteed Chicle base from uh, Glee Gum. The people who make Glee Gum, they'll sell you a pound. A pound is $15. Uh, and you, you buy it. Uh, you, you can't make really bubble gum with it. Bubble gum is always a synthetic base, I think, because it's, it has a different composition. The Chicle one is not going to blow bubbles that well. Uh, so what you do is uh, and everyone has the same recipe so I'll just give it to you uh, like I searched like every website this is the one we used and everyone uses the same thing one third cup gum base half cup powdered sugar two tablespoons corn syrup the regular stuff doesn't have not high fructose it's just it's there as a plasticizer right one teaspoon glycerin you can get that I think at uh, pharmacies we have it for pastry supply stuff then acid of your choice everyone uses citric acid because they're lazy we use Many kinds of acid, malic, tartaric, but you want a powdered acid, uh, flavoring of your choice, uh, and then and then some extra powdered sugar. And what you do is you microwave it. Uh, you microwave the gum base, a little bit of the sugar, uh, the corn syrup, and the glycerin, and the acid if you want, and you stir it. It's sticky as all heck. It forms a little little. You can put it in a quart container, and microwave it. You stir it up, and then you start stirring in powdered sugar until it forms a ball. And then you can just use excess powdered sugar, like it's flour, like you're kneading it. And then you just knead in flavor until you get a flavor you like, right? And it takes a lot more than you think. And you can knead in extra acid. You can even sprinkle with extra acid at the end when you're. Uh, so, what flavors have we done? Oil based flavors tend to work best and they tend to last longest. Uh, we've used uh, all kinds of weird oils from Mandy Aftel. We've used natural things like port wine uh, that we did a port wine reduction gum that was good but those water based flavors tend to fade very very quickly. Uh, so you have to make sure you add extra acid. Um, you can add a pinch of salt. When you're done you can uh, dust it with powdered sugar, roll it out with a rolling pin like it's, uh, like it's a dough. Um, you can roll it between acetate sheets and then roll it out and keep it flat. You can roll it into balls and cut it. You you can nuke the sheets slightly and then form them into raviolis and they'll stick to each other after they've been nuked and you could dust them with powdered sugar again. Uh, so you could put like – you can make little gum raviolis. They were good, right? We made those. But you have to use like, a, like an oil, like a solid on the inside or something that's like frozen oil-based, not water-based. Okay, listen. You are going to be tempted, Brian, to use your pasta machine to roll out the gum. Nastasha's shaking her head <laughs> no. awful. Li- horrible, right? Yeah. Yeah. If you must, if you are compelled to try to use a pasta machine to roll out your gum, use somebody else's. We did. <laughs> oh, Delicious. Oh, that thing was never the same, right? <laughs> no. Oh, my God. Anyway, so uh, it's fun. It's easy. It's $15 a pound. Cooking issues. Hey, Dave, Jacob writes in, there is a Toronto, California. There is a Toronto, Whoa. California? We stand corrected. <laughs> Ziggy played guitar Jamming good with weird and gilly And the spiders from Mars He played it left hand But made it too far Became the special man Then we were Ziggy's band This is Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Kiefer 
This is Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Kiefer. There's a lot of posturing and talking around raw milk these days and how great it is. But if you really want to get a full-on investigation into the pros and cons, the risks and benefits of raw milk consumption, here's a nifty website, www.realrawmilkfacts.com. Dot com. It has a laundry list of FAQs, along with information from studies and reports from American and European science communities. If you flirt with raw milk consumption, this is definitely worth taking a look at. This is Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Kiefer. Every spring at the end of kidding season, goat dairies across the country are faced with the question of what to do with their male bucklings. Because on a dairy farm, there's no role for a male. Often the most economical thing for these farmers to do is to cull the animals at birth or ship them off to the commodity market. Heritage Foods USA is embarking on a new project, No Goat Left Behind, looking to step in and fill this niche by creating a marketplace for these male bucklings. Visit us at www.heritagefoodsusa.com to learn more and to reserve your goat this coming October.